Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts off the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, breakout hits, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that can be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films can come about when you look at a director's body of work. Come join us on the film journey, a journey that today dives into the field of animation, but we're moving across the coast from our two-parter on Walt Disney to look at Studio Ghibli and one of its major directors, Isao Takahata. Uh, Welcome, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And joining us for this look at this director is a uh, animation enthusiast who was a longtime collaborator on a sister show on the Now Playing Network, Fresh Perspective, and has uh, expressed an interest to, to go and take a look at the studio and this director. And so I, as a relative ignoramus on all sorts of fields of animation, I'm super enthusiastic to uh, have on over Christine Sellen. Welcome, Christine. Hi, thanks, Al. Appreciate it. Really excited to be here. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for being here. So for those who don't know about uh, Studio Ghibli, there's three things you need to know about the Japanese animation studio. It's tentacles, tentacles, tentacles. <laughs> no, it uh, has a little bit of a different reputation than that. Perhaps none of those things. But <laughs> instead, if, if you have heard of one Ghibli director, it it's not the one we're talking about. It's... Hayao Miyazaki, known for such absolute gems as Spirited Away, uh, Princess Mononoke, My Neighbor Totoro, and countless other fantastic movies that have, that gave uh, Miyazaki the nickname uh, the Disney of Japan. Now, Takahata, who's probably the second most known director of the studio, one thing he does not risk is being known as the Disney of Japan, because I think we're going to find his filmography is altogether stranger. Miyazaki has attained a certain quality of just delight, wonder, often with an environmental message, and this really engaging sense of creativity. And Takahata's creativity is uh, quite a bit more fractured disparate, and goes in all sorts of other directions, some of which I have been fascinated, I was amazingly fascinated by. So before Studio Ghibli was even a thought, Hayao Miyazaki and Asao Takahata were collaborators from the very beginning, which was really a period that was the beginning of anime as a format that became so popular in Japan and such a cult obsession throughout the world. And this all started in the late 60s, and the first Takahata film is called The Great Adventure of Horus, Prince of the Sun, or alternately, The Little Norse Prince.
This came out in 1968. The young Norse warrior Holes refuses to be tempted by the villainous sorcerer Grunwald, making of him a fierce enemy. To fulfill the last wish of his dying father, Holes returns to his devastated home village, but he doesn't know what to make of the enchanting young songstress Hilda, who soon reveals strange allegiances of her own. Okay, let me just give you guys a little bit of a personal background for where my anime um, experience came from. My, my first anime experiences were viewing shows such as Speed Racer and Battle of the Planets, and I had already been imprinted by these ideas that you that um, of things moving fast with diagonal lines showing up behind them, and and people who are aghast who are held in freeze frame with their mouths wide open in like a figure, <laughs> like a figure eight type hole. <laughs> so I, when I saw this movie, I got this Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, uh, <laughs> Temple of Doom type <laughs> opening. It starts off so huge in just the sense of its energy. There's no setup. Like he is being chased by these gigantic pack of silver wolves. And the silver wolves are just wrapping themselves around him like these cloud like these clouds of smoke. And he's fighting them off with this uh, with this axe that's attached to a rope so he can have it swing back into his um uh, our hand like Thor. <laughs> and it just goes on like this for um uh, for like four or five minutes, and it's so super energetic. And I think Brad, you made a point about like this is the animated version of the intro of Conan the Barbarian. It did have <laughs> it did have that vibe, and and I've got to say, the movie that they meant to make, the movie they saw in their heads, was probably one of the greatest movies. You know? <laughs> Hollywood loves to remake things, but they keep wanting to re remake these classics. And so, no, don't remake The Princess Bride. Remake Horace, Prince of the Sun. Here, here. Because <laughs> the, 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 we have wolves, wolf ghosts. We have rock monsters. We have gigantic fish. We have everything you could want in your adventure and it looks like we had about 500 bucks to make it. <laughs> this, Very true. <laughs> this, is no, this is no creative person's fault. This is a clearly a lack of money. But also the fact that it's so early in the medium that while you have a few scenes that are really well rendered, a lot of it just doesn't look good. It looks cheap. It looks kind of like a... TV episode uh, to the point at which at certain points in the film, they've so ran out of money that they had to uh, just do still frames instead yes. of the action. Yeah, that's very interesting because I had a very similar impression upon watching this as well. I was just like, oh, there must not have been much collateral on the budget <laughs> for one of their first films that uh, Miyazaki and uh, Takahata collaborated on together. But I did think that the very beginning... Very energetic. I agree with the opening scenes. It almost reminded me of a, a back to when you're thinking about King Arthur and pulling out the sword Excalibur from the stone. It seemed very similar to that. Um, and just the idea of the wolves kind of running around him and having this axe that he throws around on a rope and whatnot. So it had like a, not only did it have like a Viking-esque sort of feel, it had an indigenous uh, a folk sort of appeal. It had like a Scandinavian appeal to it. So it's almost like he's tackling global, very early society um, 
challenges here that were experienced at the time too. So, but definitely like animation wise, probably wasn't the most refined that it could be, but I think they were experimenting a lot with different movements and whatnot here. Yeah, it's something where I was I was very uh, um, intrigued by the methodology because because there's certain films where they they try you try to make do with whatever limited resources you have. Mm-hmm. But this is the this is one of the few movies where it, like they had the set pieces they wanted to do. We wanted to have this effect, and we're going to show this effect, and we're going to spend ninety seven percent of the money there. And the stuff that isn't in the effect, let's just show pic- a couple pictures, and you'll get it. You'll get it. You'll, you'll get it. That's fine. Just roll with it until the next effect. And then when they do the next effect, it's really really good. They also did something which I would find unu- a little unusual on modern day anime because it's interesting that like how I, how like I'm looking from a Western perspective how when when Disney films and Pixar films they try to make sure that there's movement everywhere and and some and and that that everything is given us equal level of attention but I find in anime there's these kind of gaps and so on like yep. when in anime films when you're gonna show water. Water's going to be great. Fire's going to be great. And yet, I've yet to see an anime film do an, an, a bead of sweat that doesn't look <laughs> like it's a dried piece of glue attached to somebody's <laughs> face. That just For some reason, it just can't draw sweat. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And I think, especially for me, as I was watching you know, all these different Takahata films moving forward, movement is definitely a very major theme that I was seeing throughout. Some movies have much more movement portraying different ways um, than others. And then there's certain movies that still movement or still, you know, moments of silence work a lot better for thematically, at least. Mm -hmm. And often these limitations can turn into creativity because Mm -hmm. if you don't have the budget for kind of full on Disney style animation, anime does have the opportunity to do certain stylized versions uh things that look like they might be colored with pencil or watercolors or just different looks and and one thing i i love about takahata is that he's constantly adjusting how his films look they don't all look like they're from the same director or the same studio i'm really intrigued by certain scenes like one is when he when our hero meets grunwald Mm -hmm. and Grunwald is keeping him from falling off a cliff by holding on to the rope of the axe. And that is held, but it's clearly held in, in place as an image, as a still image for an effect. Right. And I find as we go on, one, one thing to keep in mind is when does he decide to use motion and when he does he decide to hold back yep. and, and, and just do, st- just do stillness or in some cases, maybe not drawing anything at all. Mm-hmm. The one thing I have really ding this movie, unfortunately, is the backgrounds. I'd rather they didn't draw <laughs> off. I don't think they should have drawn anything at all because it really comes across like these kind of a cross between amateur watercolors and a kind of like shrinky dinks that you could buy in the seventies <laughs> where you could, uh, uh, sh- uh, scratch up Spider-Man to show up on this and your nature landscape. It's r- really, really poor quality on the, when you look at, when you concentrate on the backgrounds of these things. Right? Yeah. It's Hanna-Barbera-esque. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. It also was suffering for me a little bit in that it's the hero who is this, uh, rather obnoxiously plucky, scrappy do like guy who's never really faced by anything and doesn't show too much personality apart from like I'm the hero, I'm gonna go get him. But then it w- there was a twist that happened halfway through that that really got me when he meets up with a young girl. 
something happens where you go, wait a minute, I think there's a deal going on with this girl. And what a deal. <laughs> um, the female character in this movie has so much of an arc to what happens with her that Mord makes up for, for this guy's just one-note heroics. At least I felt that way. Yeah, yeah. I think for me, I was definitely very much drawn to a couple of different female characters in this movie as opposed to the main character. The main character, to me, was kind of like the typical anime trope of the Mary Sue or the Mari Sue, where mm -hmm. he's just good at everything, no justification or reason as to why he's good at everything, but he just happens to be in the right place at the right time and saves the world, sort of thing. But when he, definitely when he meets this Hilda character, the songstress, not only is the the voice of the the actress who sang this uh beautiful but the depth of emotion that you can see in her face for me from an animation style to me looked very similar to other female characters that you'll see interweave between both takahata's movies and miyazaki movies moving forward it was very much a precursor for other female characters moving forward and you would even see very similar facial animation styles and expressions in the other female character the mother of this this boy flip i was seeing very similar um expressions between the two of them so for me they had very strong expressional features and these women at least mm -hmm. in my perspective yeah, i i story-wise i think that uh for most of the way it's cribbing its notes from the same place uh george lucas did mm -hmm. which is uh joseph campbell's hero of a thousand faces mm -hmm. myths yeah. and king arthur and just a lot of the standard hero's journey myths that we see in a lot of fiction and this is really going by that playbook but what is different is that we shift the focal point of the of the myths from this young hero who we think we're going to be concentrating on mm -hmm. to the young lady who and we'll get into a little bit of spoiler territory here turns out to be the sister of our main villain Grunwald and so she's placed in the situation in order to cause mischief and become uh, an impediment, but she starts to have doubts and her allegiances start to be very much in mm -hmm. flux. Right. Yeah. Maybe a Western type story structure is about the hero who sets the world right himself. But that when you see her relationship situation with her brother and you see how she has to keep so much of that in reserve and yet she slowly gets affection for the connections of the people in this village, which by the way, um, when when he does get the money to animate, he did, does do these really festive collections of everyone doing a different part. Like it's almost like it can be like a Bruegel painting. I think that's the the name of the painter. Where like if you look at if you freeze frame, they show in any corner of these. Say, even in the still shots, they're all doing something interesting, like a party in a certain way or drinking two beer beer steins at once or what have you. <laughs> but once you see her arc, it it doesn't become about heroics. It becomes about belonging. And in fact, it even you can even argue, although I wouldn't, that it, <laughs> it, that it that it helps that our, our main male character too, because his conflict suddenly does not become, can I defeat the main bad guy? It's because can I get the trust of the villagers? And mm. so that's that sense of being part of a community, and what can you and what can you define as like your new home is a really great twist of what I was just gonna, expecting going to be. I'll kick your ass, the movie. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, actually, it's interesting because when I was watching this, towards the end of the movie, I got to the point thematically where I was thinking, wow, a lot of this is really a precursor to Princess Mononoke in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I was thinking about like the whole idea of demonology and how that's a very close theme between this movie and then uh, that one, you know, the mystical aspects of nature and whatnot, too. But back to your point, it was really interesting because the heroine by birth she kind of related to these spirits or the demons but really she joins this hero in a cause that's greater than herself and in Mm -hmm. the meantime she really comes to know her own humanity through that and i think that's a very common theme through a lot of takahata's movies um but it was just a very, very in-depth theme for such a low-budget movie and for most animated movies were like Disney and they would happiness abound sort of thing, but mm-hmm. they were really working with a lot of um, what elements of humanity do you not are you not very much in touch with yet? Which do you have to find in yourself and then grow from it? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very interesting. But yeah. kind of like Disney, Takahata is very interested in his national myths mm. and the myths in Disney films are ones mostly through Disney. A lot of us have become very familiar with, but we should note that as three Americans trying to discuss somebody so entrenched in Japanese history and folklore that even though we've seen some of the connections just by virtue of not being Japanese, we're probably going to also miss a lot of origin points to what we're going to see because they are very familiar uh, in Japanese culture, but far less so here. But it's all interesting that with that in mind, the film doesn't tackle a Japanese subject or a Japanese myth. It's a Norse myth. Well, not quite, Hmm. because... The original plan was to have the film focus on uh, an indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. of Japan, but that turned out to be somewhat controversial. There was concern about offending this group and not really uh, being able to do the film they wanted to with those limitations. So they kind of just switched to Norse mythology when uh, originally they had in mind something much more Japanese. Oh, that's oh, that's really fascinating. I, like, I was trying to see what kind of Norse things were available in the film, and I, and I guess the idea of defining yourself through through valor, and also there has been some Scandinavian uh, like fables, a couple of Hans Christian Andersen stories, just end tragically about being like lost in the woods, and I felt the. The cold effects were so good, especially when you had, and also there's a particular, like, thing that reminded me of Werner Herzog's take on Nosferatu, where they have some rats attack the village. That's a lot of rats. That is a wave of these uh, these creatures. But the actual rat scene was one of the victims of the budget, because that's where we the actual attack itself is done in still frame. Very fair. Right. But first off is that like he did want to do thousands and thousands of pictures of these things. So his right. ambitions may have not matched the budget. But it was then followed up when the silver wolves show up, and the silver wolves are now these total streaks of like neon that go and curve in and are, are, are leaping over the, the parapet. They're silver wolf spirits. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and 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 that's just re- and that's just rendered wonderfully. Yep, and I think even other animators have drawn um, inspiration from that particular scene with the wolves as well too, because I remember seeing some recent ones based. Uh, I think Tom Moore recently did one. Maybe it was uh, 
Song of the Sea, maybe it was a secret of Kells and there were wolves that were spirits in it. So yeah, when I was seeing this scene in uh, Horus with the wolves, I was thinking, oh, I think there's a couple animators here who might have taken some inspiration for that in their own uh, portrayals of folklore for their countries. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very fascinating. Very but cool. as it turned out, this was not the breakthrough that uh, Takahata had hoped it would be. And he ended up going back to being uh, an assistant director on other projects, uh, working uh, for television. He even tried to do a uh, film of the children's book, Pippi Longstocking. Oh, but fascinating. That did not come to be. Instead, he another project uh, came to be his yeah. breakthrough. Pippi may have made kind of an appearance in the next movie we're going to be talking about. Panda. Go, Panda. From 1972. Precocious seven-year-old Bimiko has no parents, but cares for her grandmother when she, who she sends away on a trip. She's not alone for long as a friendly child panda, and his much larger father soon take a liking to her, so much so that Papa Panda offers to become her father, and Mimiko takes on the mother role for the little one. Of course, not everyone in town is nearly so welcoming about the new neighbors. Apparently, in the early 70s, Pandas were a big thing. They were one of the ways that China was trying to open its culture to the rest of the world, so it would send pandas out to uh, other zoos, including zoos in Japan, and this was known as panda diplomacy. Ah. So <laughs> when, when, when this came out, there it was absolutely part of some zeitgeist. Hmm. A pretty, a pretty good ambassador, and that's a nice, large-sized animal that has never appeared threatening, <laughs> at least in any depictions I, uh, of film or TV I've seen. Yeah, this one was definitely an interesting one for me from like an animation perspective because I felt it was like very experimental. You know, we know that Horace, they were starting to play around with movement. They were starting to play around with uh, different ways that they could animate certain characters and put facial expressions on folks. But for this one, I felt there was just a plethora of different um, just Easter eggs riddled everywhere in this one that are really cool to think about and talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. One thing I really, really enjoyed about this uh, movie was it's got this really solid Abbott and Costello a sense of comic timing. Like, there's a, various people pay the house a visit, and then when they find out a, a giant panda is there, just the way they the way they freak out, and like, what, there was one case where it it's almost seems like a guy's pupils and both ended up on the same eyeball <laughs> in his head before, before he ran off. Um, that level of, of, of sheer hysterical fright was, I think, delivered just really, really wonderfully. Yeah, even the dialogue, too. There was a point, a few points in the movie where uh, the Papa Panda character would just kind of look long out the window and say... That bamboo grove looks really nice. And to me, I was just cracking up as I was watching that. You know, the movie's primarily for younger kids, but I'm just like, that was just so well-timed. Mm-hmm. We, we try to watch the versions with English subtitles and Japanese speaking voices, but that was not available to us here. Uh-huh. But I have to say, the, the English-speaking actor who did the Papa Panda voice... Yeah. 
pretty much cracked me up throughout <laughs> yeah, this yeah. thing. It was su- such this weird, out-of-place character who also was able to deliver uh, the affection he had for his little panda mm-hmm. and for the He for kind the of girl. had a, to me, he kind mm-hmm. of had a Senor Wences voice, like the one where you, you had the hand, hand in his mm-hmm. mouth and he says, it's all right, it's all right. <laughs> and he just... <laughs> is bamboo a, is very nice. He wants his bamboo, <laughs> but I think my favorite moment is when uh, when she explains to him that Papa's go to work. Yeah. And he yeah. really doesn't like that idea, <laughs> but he's gonna do it anyway because that's his job. And so he they, they give him a hat and this briefcase and he's ready to go to work and then she sees how sad he is and goes you know what it's all it's papa's day off it's always papa's <laughs> it's day always, off. always oh, right he's he, he's so ha- enjoyed by that it's papa's day off all the time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it also does a little of the little of the if you know of the old buster keaton silent movie parts often buster has caused so many problems that by the end of the movie he's running towards the camera and there's thousands of people chasing after him and this movie has a fun version of that as as the little panda causes some havoc at the at the school a lot of disaster in the kitchen, for one thing. Yes, it's also been theorized that the design of uh, Papa Panda may have been an initial run of what uh, Hayao Miyazaki would have eventually done with uh, his famous Totoro character, who ended up being Studio Ghibli's mascot. Absolutely, yeah, that was definitely what I was seeing animation-wise. I'm like, oh, that's pretty much... Totoro's character as a panda and um, I think I read a couple other quips here and there about how like some of the basic foundational animation style of the little girl are even taken into like May's character I think in Totoro as well and then there's a couple even scenes here and there that I read about too that were very much quoting um, when Totoro for example they were quoting uh, this movie so So it's very interesting. And there's like some loop in the third characters that show up in this one as mm. well. Um, I think <laughs> yes. like in the, the part at the end where uh, after they the panda saves, you know, the girl from the bridge, there's like a whole uh, crowd of people there. And as I was watching it, I was I was looking at it and I'm like, huh, that certainly looks like one of the characters from Loop in the Third. And I think at the time they were really probably itching to right. make that one. Oh yes, yes. Loop in the third Loop in the Third, for those who don't know, was part is a is a very famous like detective series in in the era that Miyazaki knocked out of the park in his film Castle of Cagliostro. And if you look at this, there's a particular square-jawed, square-jawed policeman who very much could have been chasing Lupin the Third uh, if he wasn't uh, uh, trying to make sure if Mimiko was all right. By the way, I really was, I really was taken by Mimiko, which was interesting because she's about as plucky and as uh, our main character from Horace, but I, I think the difference is she, she's so charmingly weird in the kind of th- behavior that she thinks is, is okay. Like, there was a really lovely moment where where the police sergeant asked her, aren't you afraid about burglars? Oh, I've never seen a burglar before. Maybe someone will show up. And, he's so, <laughs> she's, uh, yeah. and then she sees some footprints outside. Oh, wow, burglars! <laughs> yes, there, there's an Amelie level of optimism yes. <laughs> going on here. Although it is a little strange thinking about this as a children's film, how she has... 
no parents or nobody right. who to really watch her because even her grandmother it's it's described how she watches the grandmother mm-hmm. so this little seven-year-old girl is basically home alone doing her own thing <laughs> yeah. until these pandas show up and then she's the one that pretty much uh, brings them in too that's right uh, it, the way it makes like for a substitute family I like uh, i find just really charming i like it's a little bit of a hint this might be a reach just the kind of the kind of like substitute families that like you're Wes Anderson panoply of, of characters could be. It's 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 interesting how he becomes a substitute father, sort of, mm-hmm. kind of, sort of, and then but she becomes a substitute mother towards the towards the younger panda. So and, and that so the, how she how she thinks of what the mother's supposed to do and how she thinks the father Papa Panda's supposed to behave is is really really interesting. Yeah, especially how it resolves at the end because it's a little bit of a bender. Right? To go and say, oh, the, the pandas, okay, a little spoiler, uh, the pandas ended up going to work. So we have the panda on the subway. <laughs> the panda's going, getting his coffee break. <laughs> and he's, and they're meeting the panda, panda father at the station. And everyone's like, okay, well, that's the, that's the, that's the arrangement we have. Right. But yeah. the cool message of it is basically it's about, all these characters just accommodating each other. Right. The little girl wants to make everything as comfortable as, the, as she can for the pandas. Yeah. The panda wants to fit in and make the little girl happy. And so it's really a great message about just working together and creating an environment where everybody is comfortable. Yeah. And that's definitely a theme that was in Horace, too, I believe, too, because we, we spoke earlier about how he was really finding that he was belonging within the community and fighting for a cause for the community as a whole Mm -hmm. and it's interesting too in this movie because i feel like not only is he speaking to young children about their capabilities like you're able to do things that might be greater than yourself but i think also your family might not be necessarily your biological one either it could be folks that you meet along the way you know you might lose some folks along the way but you might gain new ones and that might be quirky Mm -hmm. that might be as quirky as you in a comedy pretty well too so Yeah, yeah, which is a great message for this children's story. Very nicely done. It's clearly pitched for a younger audience, but gives them all sorts of interesting messages. And and the comedy, it's pitched in a, with some excellent timing. So there's some fun from there, too. And it was popular enough that there was a sequel, Panda Go Panda and the Rainy Day Circus. Hmm. Nice. Not seen by us. But Takahata would go on to other projects we also have not seen, including an adaptation of the children's book, Heidi. Hmm. But the next film we're going to discuss is Gouch, the cellist from Gouch is this cellist in his local orchestra, but not quite ready to perform Beethoven's Sixth Symphony at the upcoming recital. Berated by his conductor, he goes home to practice, but each time he's interrupted by talking forest animals. A cat, a cuckoo bird, a raccoon dog, and a couple mice. Each have musical requests that may be taken as lessons in performance. Oh God. I love, 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 love this movie. It's almost as if you took every delightful um, animal character from a Disney film and you squeezed it 
into the first moment of Disney's Fantasia. It works and honors both parts. The first part of it is so damn cool because it does the promise of something that I I love Fantasia as well. And I think Fantasia was such an ambitious move from Walt Disney because he was saying that I can take music and make it be so expressive and used all the power of animation that you don't have to show things in a realistic way. You can, you can literally have the light and the motion and the color be expressive on it. Fantasia just had a sequel, Fantasia 2000, which has some great qualities in its own right. But I'm seeing another episode of example of it here. It's so rare. As they're playing the symphony and they're really trying to get into it, it's in the middle of the lightning storm and how the lightning and the weather interact with the pe- people, but it's just cutting from instrument to furrowed face to, con- to, fr- to conductor urgently moving this side or that to play. And it just combines the idea of being able to reach towards music to get something greater in a way I've seen in very few other movies. I'd recommend it for the first five minutes alone. The opening scene was just fantastic because it kind of sets the tone for how the rest of the movie will be and how he ends up discovering himself too because we're finding that in this movie, nature, music, and emotion are all very much interconnected. It's like the holy trinity of finding yourself as a musician. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very universal to musicians everywhere because if you can't let loose, if you can't kind of get in touch with you know your surroundings and whatnot, you might, not, you might be kind of an uptight musician and not produce as fine work mm-hmm. as you want. And to- the style of the film really fits in with the music itself because Beethoven's Sixth Symphony is known as a pastoral. And so as we're hearing this being rehearsed and we move on to uh, Gouch's environment, it is this very natural um, wooded area. And we see so much of... uh, we see Gouch as kind of this individual figure in a cabin surrounded by nothing but nature. And so very few movies of any kind take music as seriously as kind of just a a process asking what it means to make music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, What did you guys think of when, after you see the main conflict of uh, can Gauch measure up to the symphony, can they get this presentation done in time? And he's practicing really hard, and you hear a knock on the door, and then a cat comes in and starts talking to him. <laughs> what did you guys think about that? <laughs> well, first of all, if that were me, I would be all over that cat. <laughs> um, but I thought it was a really interesting lesson for him because I think, again, that kind of really sets the tone for how closely emotion is really interconnected with music because the song, I think it's called Indian Tiger Hunt, it's a very, very uh, sharp-sounding uh, song, and it takes a lot of like energy and like almost like anger as you're, as you're playing this song. And I think at the time, he was in a state of anger because someone interrupted him when he was trying to figure out his process and when he was trying to practice because his conductor told him he wasn't good enough. So I think the cat really just wanted him to let loose for the first time and not necessarily focus too much on the very challenging process. The animal visitations are working on two levels throughout because on the one hand, we could take them at face value and look at what the animals are actually asking of Gouch play something they want to hear or let them accompany him or help them with the healing power of music. But then as each of these animals kind of get more specific in what they're doing, you see that they're actually teaching Gouch these lessons 
of how to be a better musician and how to be ready to perform this symphony. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you guys listening in can be familiar with when animals and, and humans interact with music and animation, a beautiful songbird would go and play some, it would, would chirp something, and you're like, oh, that's a wonderful song. Oh, I think I'll try to make it sound like that. I can't emphasize how much the interactions between animals are not like that. They're actually these really interesting philosophical concepts because the cat is so enamored by his playing and he wants him to play these kind of soothing things, these pleasant things. And when he plays this really harsh tiger uh, tiger title, it clearly affects that cat to a degree uh, I was amazed by because it affects the animation. <laughs> like yes. when in a particularly harsh piece, that cat's lines that define the cat are are so irregular. It's almost like Picasso and the Salvador Dali right. combined into <laughs> show a picture of that. Yeah, I very much saw the Picasso in there too. And then there were certain parts too where the cat fell into a bucket, and then you could see like his skeleton kind of flashing in the background as you're falling into this bucket in a very erratic sort of way. So yeah, there was just all kinds of animation. Right, some of it looks Warner Brothers as well, especially yeah, yes. the, the stuff with the cat. Now I thought the bird uh, was really interesting because. The bird basically wants him to mimic what the cuckoo bird says, which is just two notes, cuckoo. And when he plays something else, he's, the bird's like, no, no, that's not right. <laughs> you have to play what I'm saying. And he feels limited because it's just two notes. <laughs> but then discovers through kind of a duet with the bird how much can be expressed in those two notes. Yeah, I really like that kind of concept and that idea of it's the right two notes for the bird, but it also limits that in a way, notably that the bird tries to get away eventually, but he just keeps running into a window. Right. Because he see, well, you see it, like, well, there's nature right out there, and then, uh, but uh, he doesn't quite get that there's the glass. So it's sort of, he has, an, in a way, he has his own imposition that he needs to break through, <laughs> which he actually finally just crashes through and, like, I think even leaves uh, um, Gauche's foot hanging off from the windowsill, and the bird finally makes his exit. I even had like an interesting interpretation too of the bird part because I know like the conductor, he was saying like you're a little off beat, you're a little off beat too. Yes. So it almost sounded like it's the conductor coming back as a bird saying, mm. kind of picking on him as he's going about and like trying to discover himself. So that, to me, it almost seemed like it's one of those moments where as you're working to develop your craft, whether you're like a visual artist or like a musical, musical artist and whatnot, there are always going to be these moments where that person who said you're not doing as great of a job as you could be is coming back to you saying, then get a work at it a bit more, work at it a bit more. Um, on your own terms. Yes, I'm interested in music, and I'm a, I do I do some mu- musical stuff myself. I have to say, I'm not fully grasping all what each particular lesson will will say specifically, except that I am inc- more engaged when I look at the, the different lessons that that they're doing. Like like what the cat is saying, it's it's about the idea of of, re- of release, say for example, or letting of letting it go. And the bird is the idea of like the value of the precision of the thing, and the and then this little um, baby raccoon dog character who decides to play some drums, but he has no drums except he plays on the cello itself. So that's the idea of like accompaniment or counterpoint or 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 like a harmony of making the thing better better than the whole. And then the final visitor is sort of a way of ironically saying looking at the humanity of it. The kind of way that the spiritual uplift that you can get out of something like that. And each one of those affects how he deals with his basic tasks of getting food and, and dealing with the other people in the orchestra and his attitude on things. And 
And so it leads to a really fascinating conclusion when you finally see what gets the orchestra to this point and what gets him to this point. Right, right. And I think um, just kind of back to your point about like the mouse and whatnot too, I think it's interesting for me just to find this twist at the end saying that not only is your, you are we come here just to learn lessons from you, you're also actually healing us as well too. And I think that also speaks to the universal power of music to heal too, especially if you're a really good musician and you speak to a lot of different people mm-hmm. globally, um, then it's going to have a very powerful emotional impact on you too. Um, yeah. So I thought that was just a brilliant way to kind of express that without explicitly showing people praising the music as mm-hmm. they do at the end right too that yes that's right there was a moment when our main character is trying to play this piece as, as a solo and this is a case of anime restraint done right i feel because your camera's panning over these faces that are still and i don't know about you guys i didn't quite know what how the crowd was going to react same and so when you see when you see what reaction that is and especially a really nice point about the that the conductor tells them, you did this really difficult thing, and they wanted to listen. That's how you know that you've done well. And that's a really interesting take on, like, what does it mean on challenges? And especially when you want to take a complex or, or difficult thing and try to get an audience to be involved on that and not get turned away. It's also interesting how Gauss responds to all this, because when he does do the performance it goes wonderfully and they get a standing ovation and and it's well loved and then he's called upon to do an encore which he doesn't want to do and is kind of frustrated by right and feels like has he earned this so mm-hmm. when he uh goes back and plays the same tune that drove the cat so crazy <laughs> it's an interesting contrast to kind of the austerity of the Beethoven piece to this wild cello solo. Mm-hmm. Yes, and he has a great picture of Beethoven staring at it with his evil right, eyes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. This is this one painting inside his small house. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of not just music, but art as well, this is a case where he had, a, when he had a decent enough budget to do the backgrounds. I love the backgrounds yep. on here, too. They come across as some... Some of the stuff is straight up like Van Gogh level evocative. These wonderful sunsets, or how his practice often leads into the morning. So it ca- so they do this great thing as the as the light comes in over the ridge and they start changing colors of how the fields start to be imbued with greens and blues and reds. This, of course, is helped greatly by Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, quite a very well regarded piece. But I find the visuals match it. It's just such a great place for this kind of music to be a, like a fertile place for this music to grow. And so I think by the end of the film where he just gets this realization of what the effort's kind of all about and he sort of gives an apology to the cuckoo, I just find it just a lovely, <laughs> lovely ending moment. Right, right. And I think just back to your point about the scenery too, I think this is the point where uh, Takahata is really starting to really want to have this more like almost watercolor-esque scenery and pay a lot more attention to just the very detailed beauty of nature and kind of how it unfolds itself. Because really in a couple of films beforehand, they didn't spend as much time on the scenery as they did with this one. But I think at this point, he's becoming more detailed um, with his animation team and saying, observe what's around you. And really, even music is really about observing too and how you get different feelings from different things that you observe. And same thing, of course, for visual art too. It's very much a product of observation. So I think observation at this point becomes much more important detail to Takahata. 
We didn't get a chance to see every film that he did in this early period, but it's interesting how each one we have seen is an evolution just Mm -hmm. technically from the one that came before. And this is the last one we're going to talk about before the official launch of Studio Ghibli. Mm. And after that, the sky's the limit. Well, like in for this one, this is one where I felt similarly to like in our previous podcast, we were talking about um, Sawdust and Tinsel and Ingmar Bergman. And that was one, and I feel the same effect here, that I feel every component works towards this goal of looking at art and beauty and musical expression. Like, mm-hmm. ev- like the backgrounds, even if nobody's in it, it's... It, it feeds on this. The animal's cooperation feeds on it and, and his, and how he goes to the city and takes these lessons. It, it builds in on this message and, and everything flows together so wonderfully that I absolutely adore this film. It's kind of like one of my favorite animated films of all time. Thanks to this. And so thank goodness for this that we got to, explore this guy to, to get to this yeah i definitely think at this point this is where the even the scenery starts exuding emotion yes. and that just becomes a theme throughout like many many of his films afterward exactly you put a nice phrase on that christine with exuding emotion and the next one we're going to be talking about has had a vast reputation of doing just that grave of the fireflies released in 1988 <laughs> Near the end of World War II, and after the uh, Kobe firebombing, young Saida and his little sister Setsuko lose their parents and seek a means to survive in war-torn Japan. When their aunt makes it clear they're unwelcome in their home, the two children move into a bomb shelter, but food and help are becoming scarcer each day. There's a short list of films like Schindler's List, 12 Years a Slave, Come and See from the Soviet Union, films that depict atrocities in a way that's really just devastating to see but also done so thoughtfully with such meaning and humanity that you have to see them. And I feel that Grave of the Fireflies is, is one of those films. And it's, it's a little surprising that an animated film would reach that level, would be so harsh and dig so deep. But I think, as we'll discuss, there might be ways in which animation is maybe the perfect format for that kind of thing. Mm. I feel that like animation is, in some ways, might be the finest form of cinema. Because when you're doing live action, those are photos, but it's still an illusion that way by moving them from 24 frames or, or per second or 48 frames as what have you, that you get this um, motion and, the, and then emotion and thoughts and ideas and expressions. But with animation, everything is up for grabs. Every, and you can do things in like the most abstract way. And then 
uh, to me, just what's more, what can be more creative than just a line and how the line can flow across the screen? But I think, I, and I don't really know the social reasons for why animation gets put into such a um, degraded spot in culture. And I, I feel that's, a, I feel that's a shame. I feel that it can express so many more things than entertaining kids and and having them uh, buy action figures and and uh, toothpaste. And I will say this about Grave of the Fireflies. This is one of the movies you can tell someone, no, no, animation is so much more than the cartoons you saw when you were a kid. It can do this. And I think, Brad, your comparison is so wonderfully apt in like, yeah, like Schindler's List, man. Like Come and See. Like these devastating portrayals of war, an animated film can give, can give you those feelings on those deep subjects. Just as well. The other thing animation allows is for you to look more directly at it. Because if we were to witness what we see in in this film done with actors, there'd be a certain graphicness that would be necessary that would also be affecting the other films we talked about are live action and have those kind of graphic scenes. But because animation gives you the idea of starving children, the idea of somebody so wounded by a bomb attack that they're nothing but blood and, and bandages, we can almost look at it more clearly because we're not dealing with actors and sets. We're dealing with kind of a direct impression of these things i definitely agree with that and i think too a lot of times how the media has portrayed different elements of war in the past has kind of skewed our perception of what war really is too so in a live action sense a lot of times they might show or choose not to show different parts of war and so that's really all that you're exposed to um but certainly for animation media is not involved with that at all these are the animators choosing what they want to draw versus what they don't want to draw and to some extent for the live action portrayals of war since we've seen so much violence portrayed through the media we kind of get desensitized to it but if you're looking at something animation it's very clearly easy to differentiate animation between live action so because of that you might actually pay more attention to what's going on in an animated film versus what's going on in a live action film when it comes to war and i definitely agree that Grave of the Fireflies, it's probably one of the only films I've seen in an animation sense that so realistically portrays that war is simply just war. It's not something to be glorified. It's not something to think that, you know, soldiers go off to war and they come back heroes because there's so many innocent lives that are lost that we actually might not even see watching something in live action on the media. And to think about how reverently Takahata really had the animators draw this movie out, um, even the most graphic elements of it, is has something to be said about what he really thinks about the topic of war itself and how it should be treated. Because in America, it's treated in one way, but in Japan, they're a very reverent culture. So they're treating it much differently than perhaps someone doing an animation about war in the United States might. Yes, it's a different, it partly becomes a different perspective because when the war happens out to Japan, it happens right there. Right. That's 
an unavoidable facet of that their uh, that every aspect of their society gets turned upside down and to one of the thing i think the film is fairly effective is that it's methodical in how it disabuses you of the ideas of uh, our two young characters at least the older one has this real great belief in his father who's in the military and his and his mission and he believes in and he believes in Japan and and its continued success so the way it gets systematically disabused of first the idea of Japan as a military power then as there's a social order then people then your own relatives and that's something which that's something that I guess I kind of react a little negatively to. In my head, I think it's a little too methodical. It's like I sit just a straight line, go, see, this sucks, and this sucks, and this sucks, and oh, you thought that was our no, he stinks too. It, it seemed that the constriction was really methodical for me. I, I that, found it quite truthful. Mm-hmm. I liked that we spent some time with the kids before the most severe parts of the tragedy hits them because we really do get to know them as characters and care for them so they're not just these uh, kind of random insert uh, kids here type characters but what the movie does is is methodical in that it's constantly removing options for them. At certain points in the movies, there seem to be options, there seem to be solutions, ways that they can survive. But as the war hits them closer and and closer to home, yeah, we're we're seeing uh, kind of a straight line down, but it strikes me as something truthful to everything I've read in in fiction, nonfiction, and other materials about the war experience. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree. That truthful is a very good term to use, I think, for this movie because I respectfully disagree that it's very constricting as in the point to that everything is just like this bad thing is happening, this bad thing is happening, this bad thing is happening. The viewer is being very bombarded by the bad things that are happening. But I think... Takahata does a really good job as well kind of littering happier, more content moments with the children throughout the film. For example, right before they decide to go live in the shelter and the ants been treating them pretty badly, they decide to go to the beach and have just a moment at the beach watching, you know, the other folks collecting sea salt. But then right after that, it goes back into, well, they found a dead person on the beach, the dead man on the beach. But I think the truth of war is that that's really how war is, I think. Of course, in times like those, there may not be options available or as many solutions available for people to get out of their situation. And I think it's, in that sense, it's very realistic because at the time, you know, food was very scarce. So a lot of other folks were trying to either take food from them or like their aunt wouldn't give them food. They didn't have the money to buy food. Money wasn't really as important as trading food for food and trading other items for food. So there was like a variety of different situations going on at the time that just made it very realistic and believable that was a really interesting effect the fact that it showed how useless money was right in this situation that he actually was in a situation where he can get a hold of some through his parents uh account and and it doesn't do him any good no he would have to sell kimonos or he would have to sell like rice for some other sort of food and he just i can't recall exactly what he was selling but i know definitely the kimonos and even then they wouldn't take the kimonos because they didn't think it was worth 
much. Mm-hmm. Those literal trappings of society get devalued or shown to have had very little value when you get to this kind to get to this kind of crisis. And I think it's also notable that the filmmaking doesn't quite. In terms of what the presentation, it doesn't just get completely dark. It, you're not having things getting more and more gray as, right. as their situation. Even when the bomb shelter is kind of has a nice pastoral quality to it, right? There's some, yep. there's some, uh, some greenery out there. There's a little bit of a little bit of water and so on. Right. And I, I think that like does something else that 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 you, I think you can get some value to. That these two kids are at an, the right ages, so they have. It's not innocence for both the young one has innocence but it's the pure innocence mm. so that's why when she can get the fireflies it's it's so joyful and the older one has is not does not have innocence he knows that there's things he needs to do but it's native a it's native a and i think one thing that like the movie i, I think kind of hints at is it's kind of a native way of, of anyone who's just gotten past the innocence part of like, well, you're going to believe in something, but then when you look back at it and what can you really believe in? Like, this is, it is such a great, powerful message that I makes, I think this makes a, an animated companion piece to, um, Rowan Polanski's The Pianist, mm. which is another one which, about a guy who thinks the society, well, I'm a famous, I'm a famous guy who's traveling to the upper strata of society, surely, I'm going to be able to be treated better than some of the other horrific things that happen, and that is literally laid to waste. And but but also with an interesting twist, what's the thing that saves saves him as a saving grace is art. Yeah, there's not not a lot of saving going on in in, in this one, and that that leads me to go with just another thing on it is the younger one by virtue of the fact that she just doesn't know what's happening. The, when the first time I saw the movie, it's it was a gut punch, an absolute gut punch. The littlest kid is still the third rail because her innocence in every sense that like whatever she's experiencing is the the thing in her in her whole life. So when she is succumbing to disease and she literally does does not it's the thing that she doesn't know what's happening to her that really gets me. Right. The older one though, he sort of has these principles and to me it just he doesn't seem to have flaws except that he's too dedicated towards these principles that society let it about society and society lets him down most particularly there's that moment where he and his sister are literally starving to death and yet he will not return to the end and i personally just can't get past that moment at that moment i just go okay you're just too prideful it's your pride that puts you in this spot. It's not how much of this is makes a, a universal war theme about wars, desolation, as opposed to you making a very tragic mistake. Hmm. Well, I find that he is prideful. Okay. And I think that makes this a better film because it makes the point that victims of tragedies and of atrocities are real people they're not perfect they have flaws of their own and so we do see that the boy has some decisions that if he had made the decisions differently it would have worked out differently but he can't know that at the time and also despite him taking on a parental role he is still a child himself right he's not gonna make 
the best decisions. And one of the tragedies of war is that, that a kid his age would even be asked to by virtue of having his parents taken away from him and having his only relative uh, that he has any contact with be uh, uh, a cruel person. So I think that makes this even more interesting that we're dealing with three-dimensional characters. Hmm, okay. Right, and I think it's, um. I mean, we don't know for sure because events just didn't play out that way too, but I think Sita's character could either be taken as prideful or just very afraid of going back to, like you were saying, a very cruel situation with the ant too. And we don't know as viewers whether or not their situation would have turned out much differently because we knew that she was sick beforehand. She had these uh, rashes and whatnot. His, his sister sets go on her body. And the ant, we, we don't know as the viewers that he was talking to the ant about these rashes um, or seeking having her seek medical attention for um, the relative. But it could have been a very similar scenario where something else would have ailed her when they were still living in the ant's house. And then she still wouldn't have gotten the help that she would have needed because the ant just doesn't care. Right. And even when they do take her to the doctor, the doctor basically says what's going on, which is that the little girl is starving, but there's nothing he can do about it. He can't offer food. He can't uh, help her in any way because we're focused on these two kids, but this entire community is suffering from a loss of any resources that one would need uh, to survive. Mm, I, the one movie, I guess part of the reason why I guess I have the impression that I do is that there is a magnificent film that came out uh, directed by Charles Lawton called Night of the Hunter. I think that Night of the Hunter is the quintessential American fable, like a tragic fable. And it, because it's set around the depression and it's all, and there's just this really amazing moment where Lillian Gish's character says it's a hard world for little things. Mm. And those kids are also put on a perilous journey. They're also put in a situation where they don't know where to turn and where all the adults in their lives have like let them down. But those kids to me, they're more real to me because they, because they are kids, in other words, they have the, they have just frivolities and so on, and they also just make mistakes. They also just do things that are foolish, but they also are. There's a way the main character's also in in debt to his like his impressions of his father and how he deals with the preacher character. So I, I just bring all that up to go and say I look at the characters in here, and I think they're a little a little simplified into being almost symbols of native A on the older kid mm. and, and innocence on the younger. So that's why I can't put that at quite that low. But all that being said, the way that it shows the collateral damage of war is, it's that part is just delivered. And especially that message that what you think of society and community, how much of a sham that can be when moments of an actual crisis that is such a very truthful point of like what happens in wartime, and that's something that that it does bring about really effectively. So right, so. essentially, when push comes to shove, everyone's going to be turning against each other in the di- the most dire times right, of need, especially have in survival war. Survival instincts. And there's one other facet I want to run by you guys about the movie, which is that it's not just that it's the gr- that it's the grave of the fireflies, but it's also what gets built upon that grave. I think it's notable that. That when we see the older child at the end of the movie 
slash the beginning of the movie, where is it? It's like on a park bench where everyone is actually prosperous, mm -hmm. but they're just not helping him. And I feel like, what's that saying about like how the society sort of outgrown the poverty that caused them to behave in such a horrible antisocial manner, and yet that behavior is still around? Right, because the war is over yeah. at this right. point, and he's dying in the subway, and... Yeah, it, it it really is saying something that, that even at that point, there's nothing that can be done. I think the movie implies that losing his sister and everything he lost during the war has left him so much of a, a shell of a person mm. that he didn't have much of a chance anyway. But yeah, you're 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 looking at community and grave of the fireflies is really questioning whether that's even viable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's interesting um to me and thinking about all the points that we just made and going back to what you said al about there's really not much to be said about saving in this movie and in thinking about what we just said i think it might be an interesting point to bring up that really in these points where they're saying they're showing you people walking past him and like push coming to shove and you know folks not sharing food with each other and even the relatives turning on you and even at the end we see him sitting on the bench with i think his sister and there's like this metropolis behind him and whatnot too yeah. i think it really says a lot about can you really save yourself from turning into someone who might turn someone away who really needs the help especially during war times and whatnot too because there's plenty of people you know experiencing genocide around the world and you know there's refugees that need help and we often turn a blind eye to them because we're all stuck in our own bubbles and going about our own business so i think if anything is to be saved i think of this movie is it's a introspection about yourself and how you interact with folks who really need your help will you help them or won't you because i know certainly when i watched this movie back when i was 11 or 13 years old around that general age i really started thinking about what if this situation happened to me would i help someone or would i hurt them to get by and i think that's a really interesting philosophical viewpoint one thing that I, I thought of while I was watching this was something I had only found out, I think maybe in, in the last 10 years, about Anne Frank, which, as everybody knows, that she died in the Holocaust. Right. But I think there, I at least had an assumption that she was uh, killed as one of the victims. And in fact, she died of disease and starvation mm. from neglect which is the same thing happening to these kids. And then you look at the kids who've died at our own border because of the terrible immigration policies that have been put into place here. And Grave of the Fireflies becomes a movie about today, too. Yeah, that's some great points, guys. Maybe one of the ultimate values on this film is to give this pro-humanist message and and like what this roger ebert said that films are empathy machines and i i think this film does give you an effect of like looking at the desolation side of things but also it's making an a pro-empathy advocacy position too and like you're so correct brad it's a an attitude a message that uh becomes a social benefit one of the values of taking a look at this film grave of the fireflies well, moving on to our next film, the one element that it 
has in common with Grave of the Fireflies is that it's the kind of movie one would not suspect would be presented in animation. It's called Only Yesterday from 1991. Well, I'm not the singer that you used to know. Teiko is a young woman living in Tokyo and searching for meaning in her life. She thinks she might find it by visiting the small farming village where she grew up. She looks back to her school days when she was 10 and relives the dreams, embarrassments, and traumas of early adolescence. This film hit me in a couple of very, very weird, very weird ways. I didn't watch this stuff in order, but... This was different from almost any other anime in a couple of ways. One of which is that there was a design choice. First off, the film is really effective at blending in the past and the present and the beginning to leave you disjointed. I felt that that was really nicely effective. But then I noticed that when you're looking into the flashbacks of her as a young girl, the backgrounds are lovely up until the parts where there's no background at all. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like these watercolors where... The thing that's valuable in this child's memory is the thing that's colorful and notable. And everything else is just disappears into this like lovely beige or past- pastel-type shade. <laughs> Yet another thing animation can do that live action cannot is to visually represent the idea of how we remember things yep. and of how incomplete it, it can be. So here we have animation missing, but for very much an artistic purpose. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I think it very much speaks to dreaming, or if you're remembering certain things, especially in childhood, you remember very vividly certain parts, but then other parts you might kind of use selective visuals to take out. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have to say, I have to admit a bias up front, is that I am not a fan of coming-of-age movies. Only maybe the musical biopic I, I, dis, I, dislike, I dislike more. And, and partly for the same reason. It's because there's certain signposts of like, oh, and after this summer, nothing was the same. And then you, and you have this moment of your life that, that is these, these obvious signifiers. And one thing that intrigued me about this movie is that our main character is reminiscing about her life, and they aren't those signifiers. There's some moments that are quite dramatic, but some moments are just plain old weird. Notably, there is a, a crush that she has with a baseball player that kind of goes nowhere, but leads to a really wonderful effect that, let's say, would be a lot more difficult to do in live action than, than it would happen in animation. Embarrassment is often something felt by the characters yeah. in the movie, and I kind of like how it's rendered in just these... Uh, dark drawings on the cheeks to mm-hmm. yes. uh, indicate when somebody is just horrified, which, of course, would be constantly in sixth grade, <laughs> especially when you start noticing the opposite sex and things that might have seen, seemed innocent, like, oh, let's go talk to that boy, all of a sudden has this much more momentous 
quality to it. Mm-hmm. And this movie even goes so far as to uh, talk about uh, for young girls what it's what it's like to get their first period. Yep. Uh, I think this movie really much speaks to um, kind of the idea of like what reality is versus your expectations of it too. And I think once you start hitting puberty and you get around the age where you get interested in the opposite sex and you're maturing in different sort of ways and like you're realizing what adults mean by about certain things and coming to a more adult understanding of things, you realize that what um, you expected to happen may not actually happen in reality. Case in point with the, the baseball player and the crush on him, how expectations are that this is going to lead to something great and momentous. And there's this whole scene when she goes, home and there's this whole pink background and she has the sparkly anime eyes going on and she's excited because this might potentially lead to something but the reality is they only had one very tiny thing in common they both like the same weather pattern <laughs> so yeah. we as viewers know that's not really going to go anywhere and case in point it didn't go anywhere um and i think <laughs> i think even um with this character growing up i know like my myself i watched this movie for the first time when i was the same age as the main character 27 and then the, the movie came out the same year i was born so there's some weird things going on with this oh, oh. and i was also living in the city at the time so i had a very interesting perspective and uh just reaction walking watching this movie because i thought it was a very realistic portrayal of, like of a coming of age story for females of course like it takes place in different cultures so i didn't understand all the cultural references but really i think all Ultimately, the movie was kind of saying, what is your expectation of something might always be a reality. And there's a point where you kind of have to try to find yourself and what really means a lot to you versus what means a little to you. Familiar expectations versus what are your own expectations for yourself and what do you really want for yourself? Um, And I definitely had very much a connecting relationship with the main character on those points too because there were points where you have to decide what's best for you and then what does your family think is best for you and then you have to go kind of discover yourself too so I thought it was interesting in that way and it really goes into the idea of how we never really lose who we are right. as kids and and there's a great scene on a train where the adult character is traveling back to her hometown and it's talking about how she can never really get rid of the 10-year-old yes. her. And then the 10-year-old her shows up there on the train as if to demonstrate. Yes. And I think there's a lot to be said. Because I think in American culture especially, there's a very sharp line between you are a child and you are an adult. So once you reach adulthood, you shouldn't really like things you liked as a child because it's considered really immature. But I think there's more, at least in the Japanese culture from like movies like this, I'm seeing more of a connection between your inner child and your adult self. For me personally, there are things from childhood that I still remember very fondly and that have helped me develop into who I am as an adult too. So I think it says a lot about not letting go of your inner child because it can help you dictate who you're going to be when you're older. Mm. There's an interesting connection in this movie about what connects seems to connect her is food or rather like the maybe the land might be because remember how i said earlier about how there's certain things where anime people they concentrate incredibly much like when you know when you're watching an anime film and you're seeing the sunlight glint off the robot or the giant robot that's going to be the best sunlight glinting off a robot that's ever mm-hmm. been depicted and, and every ounce of creative energy is used on that but that's what this movie kind of does for food <laughs> as a youngster <laughs> she's trying all she's really likes all sorts of exotic food that comes in from her father who is learning his parenting trips from the father from roma <laughs> um by the way and and but they they the family's huddled around a pineapple how do you eat this guy and as the the light from the room is glistening off the uh, off the fruit as it's being separated into sections and which way do you eat it and so on yeah and so 
I guess that's part of what leads her to go to work out in the field. Mm. Right. By the way, I love that the pineapple punchline, as much as it's been lovingly rendered, they do not like the pineapple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and I think that, like, that's actually, like, I'm really glad we point. went into, like, the, the part about the food, because, again, I think that really ties back to reality versus expecta- or, like, expectations versus reality, because they all expected it to taste great. They've heard it's all, oh, it's so exotic. That must mean it's great. And then yeah. when they try it, they're just like, oh, this really isn't that great. I really don't like it. Like, it's too tart or something like that. But what's interesting is that towards the end of that scene, the camera is focused on this little girl and she continues to eat all the pieces of yes. that her family wouldn't do. Yep. And I think she so wanted it to be how she expected it to be mm. that she was not willing to compromise the fact that in reality, she doesn't really like it. Right. Which could right. tie into why she finds herself unhappy right. living in Tokyo and wanting to find out what the missing pieces of her are. And maybe, Going back to her hometown and and living a a life on the farm is going to fill this void for her. Mm -hmm. Now, that's that's a great point. Yeah, she has a searching spirit that her relatives don't quite... They found some sort of accommodation, a way of dealing themselves in the world that she's just just not found. Yeah. And so she thinks that maybe this sort of sabbatical out will get her some sort of a connection. Yeah, and I also found it really notable that apart from the food thing, she's not really someone who has that many like captivating interests. There's not something like, oh, here's something like she's really skilled at. Or here's yeah. something that even that she, apart from wanting to go back and reconnect, something that she really wants. It's a way of mu- sort of muting the idea that, that, that this is just... This is something that like ordinary people can go can go with, and 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 that also behaves in a way about like her reminiscences, the things that she comes back to her memory. Some of them are really big, but some of them are just these slight moments. And I'll say this: this is a film where I think the second time I, I saw it one time for this podcast, as soon as I was done and I realized what was the reason that brought her there, and it wasn't about the food, and it wasn't about. Uh, Let's just say the enthusiasm about farming, which I'll get to in a second. But it's, but up until that point, I was I was kept off balance by the different stories. It does, and to me, it didn't really help that she wasn't remembering these stories in a way that made it more contemplative. It is actually a contemplative film, a film where yeah. she was doing ordinary things, and then you look back on on like their younger self doing these ordinary things, and like and the idea is that the grace notes just come in in between. It comes from you observing what they're what they're doing, as opposed to people explicitly saying, "Oh, that was bad. Boy, you sure learned something today," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You're you're picking up from the details of how these people are animated, the backgrounds they're in, and stuff like that. And that part's and that part's really cool. However, unfortunately, instead of like just showing this stuff, it has her relating this stuff to people, including details, which is like. I don't know if you'd really want to tell that relative stranger about your uh, your budding musical career, for example, which sort of <laughs> comes out of like really left field at like the last twenty minutes of the movie. And so, so the the sixth time she tells a random stranger about some fact which may be important to her, but definitely is not going to be important to this person. <laughs> I felt like the scenes in Airplane where Robert Hayes would tell his story to people in the airplane, then as the flashback descends, he finds out that the other person has long since hung themselves or stuck their thumb in a light socket. <laughs> that was how I was taking it. And then, wow, when he gets to the farm, it that's one thing where I go, okay, that goes a, way, a little too far in showing farming is the idyllic existence uh, a way a person should live their life every farmer person is this 
big smiling for like person like comes across like they've been lobotomized by a farm implement and they just they're just so adoring about how it's like to do backbreaking labor in the fields now mind you when they are working the fields by doing the details that part's cool like just how you collect the flowers how you press them to make the rouge and how the right. rouge which by the way of course is a, not a small symbolic thing towards her growth and maturity let's put it that way that part's cool but it's when the farmer say oh to get up in the morning and sing a song together as we're plow as we're plowing the fields like really and there's a guy who picks her up at the train station who honestly to me sounded like he was delivering like a communist propaganda from a pamphlet about like ah <laughs> uh, yes farming it's the backbone of the nation <laughs> no we grow this stuff out the land so we are the land and the land is ourselves and he's putting his high full we don't put any chemicals in these in the land because we want just what nature intended to grow out of and just oh wow man like <laughs> yeah i think that was a bit far-fetched just not like you said not every farmer is going to be very ecstatic about the back-breaking labor that they're doing yes, to say the but, least <laughs> but i do think like thematically it was interesting to me because one of the things i picked up on is obviously she felt happier working out in the fields doing potentially back-breaking labor than working in an office yes so to me that really i think maybe like the happiness of being a farmer versus like being an office worker kind of thematically said something like are you really happy with what the fruit of your labors are it mm -hmm. also fits in with a right. theme that takahata it, continues to go back to which is the uh purity of nature and of a, a natural state so especially in a number of films we're gonna be talking about after this we're gonna see the idea of the the big city and the small uh, village being contrasted with the small village, or in, in some cases just a pure state of nature, being the ideal. And I think this kind of going back to the farm theme fits in with with this with these larger motifs. Yeah. I can see that with him. I can see that with him. I, I, part of that is that my reaction is that I kind of tend to view nature in less of the Disney side of things and more of the Werner Herzog side of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, hey, there's some lovely stuff in nature, but then there's also just these horrific uh, conflicts between <laughs> things trying to fighting to survive there too. And But as it turns out, the idea of, well, what kind of nature is nature is brought about real in a really interesting way in the next one we're talking about, Palm Poco, released in 1994. We follow a community of raccoon dogs whose habitat is being overrun with suburban development. What none of those moving in know is that raccoon dogs are shapeshifters who often appear as anthropomorphized versions of themselves, and it can even mimic people. What they can't do is agree on a strategy on how to handle the ever-encroaching humans. So you did not hear wrong. We are discussing raccoon dogs. <laughs> And I, th I thought at first that we were just talking about raccoons. They look like raccoons in their initial state. But in Japan, this is a, a, an actual species. Uh, but uh, just in, in picturing them, if you haven't seen the film, they look like raccoons. Until a moment at the beginning that is one of those just great 
am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing moments? Because <laughs> we've kind of established a bit of a watership down dynamic. Yes. Two, uh, cartoon. Uh, we're, we're, we're two uh, raccoon dog uh, clans are about to go at it. Uh, and as they do, they transform into anthropomorphized versions of themselves, uh, some of them dressed as samurais and looking uh, far more humanistic. And we see this kind of back and forth between the states of these creatures, uh, depending on whether they're being observed by humans or even their mood, like when they're drunk or when they're injured, they all of a sudden turn into almost like stuffed animal versions right. of themselves. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a kind of a glorious effect. Yes. <laughs> and it's definitely interesting, too, at the beginning of the scene, because we're kind of seeing a number of different animation styles with just the one animal occurring here, right? So there's like the realistic portrayal of what raccoon dogs actually look like. Um, very Grave of the Fireflies-esque, where it's, everything's very realistic and gritty looking. Then there's these like two-legged walking like humans, anthropomorphized versions of the raccoon dogs. And there's this third type of animation that's used too, that comes directly from the manga or the comic that this was originally based off of too, because oh. I guess Takahata really, really liked the style of the original work. So then he decided anytime there's something whimsical happening or maybe if they get hit by a sword or something like that they kind of fall over in a very weird mm-hmm. very simply drawn sort of way so mm-hmm. that's something that was also added in that was really interesting right off the bat yeah uh, on this level alone i adore this film not just because it's three different perspectives but what i adore the most is just how much level of Tex Avery type energy and derangement they come from switching between these things yes. on an absolute whim. After that moment where the, the two raccoon armies change, it's so phenomenally fluid how they just keep switching across these things. It's so damned energetic that it just drives the movie for me all on its own. This yeah. is the film that most reminds me of a Miyazaki film in, mm. in the sense that the imagination into fantasy is so unleashed because this shape-shifting thing in a live action film or in a film with uh with less imagination you could see maybe a few variations happening over and over again but with this every time they shape-shift and and it's made clear when some elders come into town who really know their stuff that (laughs) they can shape-shift into anything cool and they decide to show up as three of the coolest japanese punk hippies you have ever seen in your life (laughs) right they spend time i want those glasses yeah (laughs) they spend time as as humans but then like they could join together and become a giant snake at one point because what they need to do is basically scare the humans away from the forest that they're developing is they uh, create a parade of terrors to try to frighten everybody. And just the series of creatures and ghosts and goblins that appear before us are, are, 
are wonderful. Yeah, I couldn't imagine how long it took one for like the ideation process. How are we going to get all these folk, these characters moving? It was so fluid. The word fluid that came up just recently and just now, it was that's just the perfect word I would use for this movie because the sheer perfection of the animation here with how fluid all the movements were, not only for the raccoon dogs but for like the other images that you're seeing as well in the movie was just perfect and it was visionary it's like not even in a blink of an eye can you see these characters like like the raccoons for example when they're going over the hill and they're changing into kettles yeah it was just barely perceptible just barely and you definitely see in this one more than i would argue all the rest of them how much movement plays a role in sao takahata's movies in general yeah 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 there's a right right there's such a great scene where where they're trying out their ability to transform and they first have to try to transform into kettles before they can get to the human right. level yeah and, and the way they do this is like not since like the the classic screwy squirrel stuff of like the 40s like because they're changing into like four different kinds of statues of a different religious iconography but the fourth one is a little slow on the update so he's always just a little bit behind so he's on he's on he's on religious deity number three while they're on five and so on and, yeah. and, and it's just changing like this like this like this like this and just the ways they just upend like looking as humans looking as raccoons looking as realistic ones looking as fanciful ones is just like sometimes you get films which you, know, you have and like me obviously Miyazaki and, and this director is no exception where you feel the creativity right but this is one where I really enjoy because you feel like they have the creativity and then someone jacked in some cocaine right into his <laughs> right into this brainstem and pulled the plunger because like <laughs> any way you can any way you can treat like these raccoon dogs is always up for grabs. You don't know what the hell's gonna happen next with these guys. There is a moment where I just like I had a laugh and gasp at the same time when they're fighting as like the realistic raccoon dogs and but someone says, hey, stop that. And one of them takes off his realistic raccoon dog mask to show this, <laughs> this humanoid raccoon dog face. <laughs> like, wait, that's not how that worked. Yeah, I think like it's, uh, Takahata like so skillfully again intermixes like comedy and just very succinct timing to like very subtle especially in this movie very subtle depictions of like tragedy and like moments of tragedy or that you know something bad is happening mm -hmm. it's by a landslide it's comedic that's right. pretty easy to see but i think he and he kind of mixes all emotions together in a very well-timed way mm -hmm. and what would be particularly comedic to uh, american audiences or audiences outside of japan is uh, our ignorance of uh, certain folklore elements of raccoon dogs which uh, apparently involve a prominent place for their <laughs> scrotums uh, their what their the <laughs> <laughs> what was that brad well you know, when I signed up to do the Directors Club, I didn't think I'd be saying the word scrotum so often, but yeah, in, this for the one, in this one case, it's going to be appropriate because yeah. we see all the raccoons at one point on what they think is a carpeting, but is then made clear is their, their leader's scrotum. <laughs> the scrotum is used as a parachute. It is used as a weapon at points. This is an, these are all purpose body parts for some reason. And, and what's interesting too is in Japanese culture, mm -hmm. I, I think like Tanuki scrotums are actually pretty 
there's like some properties of like tanuki scrotums okay. or like some associations with mm -hmm. the scrotums huh. that hold a place in Japanese society and their life. Because I know I did some research after watching this one, and there's a scene with the two raccoon dogs bouncing a white ball and they're singing a song. And apparently, in Japanese culture, there's a nursery rhyme about tanuki scrotums, but they call them balls and they equate them to the balls. Huh. like the actual bouncing balls that kids use in like courtyards and whatnot so there's a nursery rhymes that japanese kids will actually sing that say like tanuki tanuki golden balls in it so apparently that's also a very prominent part of their culture is some associations right. with the scrotums and fertility and things like that this so, led, huh. this led yes. to a, an amusing moment for the uh, disney translators who wanted to create the english version of it because in the japanese version the the line is something like oh you are all standing on my testicles but in the english version the, the, you are all standing on my raccoon pouch <laughs> okay yes because i i wouldn't ex i would i would be startled by that line from a nicholas winding refn movie <laughs> and, and to get this from a cartoon is something, something different especially when it's used to block an entire truck windshield <laughs> 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 this was one very dedicated word, which I almost want to think is the uh, the, the uh, raccoon dog version of um, uh, Toshiro Mifune. <laughs> Always dedicated towards fighting. The fluidity of how they switch between their animation it continues to be a, just an absolute fever pitch. And one thing I also enjoy is that it also follows from like how we were, you know, how I was like complaining about how like nature is treated as this like kind of real positive thing in in the previous film, but here. It does to attitudes of nature as uh, Robert Zemeckis' used cars do to the car industry. <laughs> and, like, in certain ways, you're sincere, sincere about it. It's like, oh, yeah, they need to go and get out of their situation. But in other ways, they are, as a team of animals trying on a mission, they're incredibly lazy and incompetent at <laughs> doing it. <laughs> and so you get these really fun scenes where, much like um, the, um, Wes, the Wes Anderson film, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, mm. they have these big plans. So, oh, here's a big map, and so we'll go in here and we'll stop them there. But then it was immediately followed by, hey, we just draw a good map. Let's have a party, and then they're all partying, and they all forget their mission <laughs> yeah. that, <laughs> until that, someone tries to set them straight. That is apparently a folkloric uh, quality of raccoon dogs in in fact, the title of the film, Pom Poco, refers to the sound made when uh, a raccoon dog drums out a melody on their own stomachs. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And so what does that mean to go and have like this idea of, of environmental ruin and also people not getting the support and finding the resources are scant, something that was done to big, tragic measure in Grave of the Fireflies, yeah. but here is done in this very kind of pleasurably sarcastic way. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when you're mentioning the anthropomorphized versions of the raccoon dog standing on their two feet, they're almost doing a satire of human beings and how they act, because at one point they're even eating hamburgers or sitting in front of a television, yeah. and they're doing commentary on it. So I think it's almost a satire of how human beings are and their perception right. of human and beings. And the fact that some of them can uh, transform into human beings right. and other others cannot brings up some interesting issues that the these creatures are facing which is the fact that they can adapt a lot of they them can, can Good one, become yes. become humans and survive and maybe even thrive in fact there's another species of shapeshifters foxes mm -hmm. who apparently have 
let all their non-shape-shifting brethren uh, be killed so that they can reap the advantages of just living a human life. And that's kind of a moral dilemma that the the raccoon dogs face. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's great. I mean, I'm looking at this and I think, imagine like the ending of Orwell's Animal Farm, but in like the most sarcastic, (laughs) ironic measure possible. (laughs) Just where it's treated, where the ending where like, like you move from pig to man, pig to man, and you can't tell them apart, but it's played for laughs. It's so exuberant in how it absorbs the dilemma that these guys that these guys find themselves in. Like there's a climactic battle where they use their quote unquote pouches to go and uh, fight off these construction workers. They're bouncing along with these uh, in these um, organs, and uh, and, it's, and it's it's really really crazy. And then it just cuts to like a, a news report. Uh, oh, they all died, of course. Yeah. Whoa. Also, the film is not to have this light about like having construction workers get killed by someone imitating like a funny fu- a funny figure and and uh, causing the truck driver to go whoa and drive way off the road. Oh yeah, some of these guys are straight up eco terrorists. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And one of these raccoon dogs is very clearly just uh, sadistic hyper violent guy who just wants to go and slaughter people yeah and i think like even the, like his character and then the the foil character the strategic one the other strategic raccoon that says let's just plan this out in a mature manner <laughs> and think about how we're going to go about this because humans are no small villain to try to defeat right and i think that speaks to a lot of folks that we have like in power now and how they go about either planning things strategically or just going about it with a very hot head mm-hmm. too. Yes. Right. For all the craziness of this film, when it gets to the end, it's got a real pointed environmental message. Mm-hmm. And just like we talked about with Grave of the Fireflies, now uh, that we're in a global warming world, we we can apply this movie to our world as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. That leads to like just three real quick ones I want to toss out about how it's so... um delightful to have uh, bounce off these concepts and and being expressed creatively through animation one of which is that the raccoon dogs hold humans in high regard until he finally finds out what kind of tv and stuff that they're eating and stuff like that and so they're shown as like these buddha figures moving houses like they're chess pieces and they're like looming over the landscape and in another way, they're talking about the increased development of their of their habitat, and it's shown like a a leaf, and the leaf is being consumed yes. by these yellow figures. Except they aren't caterpillar caterpillars; they are bulldozers by run by caterpillar as they're ru- mm-hmm. running around and, and making the leaf smaller and into bits and pieces. Yeah, and I think that's really cool. That was a really cool effect for me too, from an animation perspective. And it goes back to like the, the energy of the movie and how it's always just very, very high paced. I think that also speaks to how fast paced the environmental changes are occurring too. So like the yeah. whole movie is also with its movements and how fluid it is is speaking to these animals have to try to keep up with all these changes that are being made to their environments and where are they ultimately going to go. Mm-hmm. Some of them can disappear on their own others can't and there was a dialogue at the end that's saying some of these animals can't disappear on their own they can't go adapt elsewhere where will they go that's a great point the fluidity of both the uh the animation and the ideas that are running behind the animation are undergirding the idea of the urgency of what their of what their situation is and talk about uh, the uh, the energy of it one of my favorite facts on here to just like make for make a right turn detail saying uh, they're saying it takes a lot of effort to imitate a human. That's why they love energy drinks so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so most of the it's a it, 
and the, I think the narrator says that's just a well-known fact that most energy drinks are done by raccoon dogs and imitate humans. And it's interesting because <laughs> he's like, I admire the way humans live because it takes a lot of work. Yes, <laughs> which is ironically the same lesson that the panda learned in Panda Go Panda. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. The, yeah, great point. Seeing man. the connections between all the yeah. films. Mm-hmm. Nice one. Yeah. So I, I I tremendously enjoy that those aspects of it, and it's to me it's like a cinematic fountain, both on freeze frame and just watching in how all these raccoon dogs transborgify into all these different things in what would be a desperate attempt to adapt, but is not treated in desperate, but in a whimsical and super enthusiastic way. That's what I make, think make this movie super enjoyable for me. Next up, My Neighbors, The Yamadas, released in 1999. This film consists of many vignettes of varying lengths, all focusing on the Yamada family. Father, mother, teenage son, younger daughter, and grandma drive each other crazy. But they're family after all. Anime is known for putting people in strange positions and giving weird sights. But My Neighbor the Yamadas is something else entirely. (laughs) I've never seen a film like this. Uh, And there might be good reason for it, (laughs) but... (laughs) I was amazed when uh, I'm watching this and going, am I literally watching a 90-minute collection of the finest High and Lois and Ziggy comic strips set set on film? (laughs) What the heck? We were talking a little earlier about the how in Only Yesterday the flashbacks they draw things, but then they then they don't. But then there's things left in the background. Right here, there's things where people are just the figures are just standing in the middle of nothing. Right, yeah. it's very low tech. Until it, it isn't. Uh, right, yeah, the figures are very minimalist. Sometimes looking like they're from a cartoon strip. Other times mm-hmm. looking like watercolors. But the animation style is distinct from anything else we've seen uh, from Takahata. And it's to the service of what I can only describe as a Japanese version of The Simpsons. (laughs) This family dynamic meant to be a little more realistic in the sense that it's a more typical family. Yeah. But the way they're portrayed is interesting in that the animation gives us moments that can't actually exist in realism, but are symbolic. So we start out with basically when the uh, mother and father on a giant toboggan ride that they have to hold on to, and then they see, they, they transform into another vehicle when they have kids. So we're seeing all these visual elements that aren't really plot-oriented, they're not about the story, but they just kind of represent what these realistic things feel like. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's almost like 
again, it's like the emotion exuding through like different movements that are occurring, like the tobogganing down the wedding cake as the wedding speech is going mm-hmm. on. Yep. And then um, the the motorcycle scene kind of towards the end when the father is picturing himself as the master rider and saving his, his wife and his kids from these two like thugs on a motorcycle and how fast that goes. And just, I think, again, it's kind of like the expectations versus reality thing. And like you expect certain points of life to go a certain way and then they might navigate into another direction and then just the interweaving too i think with the movements with uh different folklorian elements too especially when they go onto the boat and then they end up having their kid ha- almost hatched from peach right <laughs> and whatnot too so it's like he's he's <laughs> he meaning takahata is intermixing modern japanese life and very flawed modern Japanese life too with these folklorian elements too and what I think I really liked about the animation style is not only was it minimalistic I think the portrayal of the family is very in and of itself flawed it's showing that these folks are very human because a lot of times I think especially in the western world we look at Japan as a very like reverent culture very respectful culture and they have they're very procedural right for everything but you're seeing this family acting very universally to how like an American family would act and you're just realizing at the end of the day everyone has like flaws in their family everyone has arguments everyone fights everyone feels lonely at times and whatnot and it's a very universal feeling mm-hmm. a lot of the vignettes only last uh, a couple minutes but near the beginning there is an extended one in which basically the family has left a little girl yeah. alone their their daughter alone at the shopping mall yeah. and don't realize it till they're halfway home in the car and meanwhile we see the little girl making friends and <laughs> meeting people and doing her thing she's cool but the family is in a complete state of panic except the grandma was kind of like I told you so <laughs> well that's such, so super that was what's so super weird for me because we were looking at films that had these like fantastical elements and and we're dealing on these really harsh realities and I'm seeing what could be the Japanese Everybody Loves Raymond episode. Yeah. <laughs> like the humor is such of a line, line, punchline, setup, setup, punchline that I halfway expected like the the Kodo drum version of the Seinfeld theme to to play in <laughs> in between these breaks. But what one of the things that really amazed me was how just from like the first movie the same thing happens here some of this stuff is so minimalist that just ha- that literally just has these figures which might as well they could be like their lego versions might be more detailed and they had their mouth open agape and that, that's it they're just a freeze frame on that <laughs> but then when they do the toboggan that toboggan thing is brilliant it's just scrolling all around this cake and then it moves all then it scrolls all the way up the cake to show it's part of their own wedding reception and so on and and then they there's parts where they describe their marriage as a, like a ship that you have to brave like like harsh waters but sometimes still waters are the most uh, uh, treacherous yep. and they do this with the ship with giant waves are crashing in on them and like it's, the Hokusai wave exactly and it's just and that's just phenomenally well rendered so it's clear here that that's like an aesthetic choice and I think he stretches that as far as like how much can animation can I do for this but how little can I do for this for these specific purposes right Hmm. For me, I was a little weirded out by how it fit the sitcom, it, the, the the sitcom idiom out there, and also their troubles 
they didn't quite get down to family circus level, but there was like, oh, this guy gets a phone call. He's going to get on a date. And the fact that it's actually a home, literally a home, a home alone or mall alone in this case scenario, that's just, it's, it's just such a setup, such a setup for Modern Family if you were going to animate it like Ziggy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Though he pulls a Pom Poco trick when the father figure's manhood is put under threat by trying to tell these these punks to quiet down he suddenly de- is depicted in a realistic manner mm-hmm. and which is a really interesting choice on uh, on that whose perception is of what's happening at that point and, and and how are these people seeing themselves because once the grandma comes in with her words of wisdom the the big burly punk who's tr- looked in a presented in a big burly manner he's treated as just slightly bigger blockier dude <laughs> <laughs> And his threatening his threatening um, uh, motorcycle is just rendered like as a as a silly scooter as a result. Yeah, and I that was an interesting scene to me because that animation just seems so out of place. And I was trying to figure out what whose perspective were we looking into for one, and what is this trying to say like from the emotional standpoint? Mm-hmm. How do these people view themselves? So that was interesting for me. I was well, trying to figure it out, but I quite couldn't. There are so many of these little stories, and that that's the one that's probably one of the more memorable ones. But it's also very atypical of the kind of stories we generally see, which are these little slice-of-life moments that uh, are natural, but they are so natural that you could barely even notice them once they're gone. And I think, you, Al, you might have hit on something when you called it like a sitcom, because... In the American version, they went ahead and hired Jim Belushi to be the voice of the father. (laughs) That is really funny. Um... As opposed to the jokes here, which are more of the chuckle, I found more of the the <laughs> chuckle variety. And actually, when you say they're subtle slices, there were some that were so subtle that I felt like there was the, like the old Reader's Digest, uh, <laughs> like guides of whimsy that you read in the margins when the article's not long enough. <laughs> Just like one particular one in particular comes to mind when the father is uh, going out for groceries and the mother says, "Oh, remember, you need to get uh, meat, cheese, a newspaper, and some lettuce." And then it cuts, and then it cuts to the shot of the father saying, "Yes, I remember meat, cheese, newspaper, and lettuce." And then it expands to show he's still at the dinner table. I just forgot to go shopping. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> going back to Takahata's way of dispersing comedy riddled with tragedy in it. There was these moments too, especially with the the basho poetry that would show up or the haikus that would show up. Oh yeah. Where something very subtly tragic would happen and then there would be a poem following it directly afterwards. So it didn't only like focus on like the high energy and like the highs of life, but also a couple of like just interpersonal tragedies that Mm-hmm. a lot of universal families go through especially like if someone's feeling lonely and like their partner's not paying attention to them or in this the perfect example with the father and the camera how he wanted to go outside with his family take a picture yeah. and they just wanted to sit in front of the television that's a very universal and modern problem mm-hmm. yeah the haiku was really i wish i could recall the haiku is something like the man in charge is in charge of being alone or something like that yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, when he meets the motorcycle gang that's one of these kind of moments where it just touches in on how are you valuing yourself and, and your worth in this particular family unit is brought upon 
really, really, really nicely at the end, I feel, because mm -hmm. he's, uh, uh, he tries to go and give a speech and he splutters through to which like both his, uh, both his uh, granny and, uh, and his wife go, oh, well, wait, there's a real man. And then it cuts immediately to like the wife singing a tune made popular by Doris Day in the man, in the man who knew too much. But it's the father who belts out K Sera Sera with the Japanese lyrics. Yeah. But then it cuts to different incidents and then it expands from the family. It shows like what the teacher, the teacher had a little mission statement that she wrote on a board. And like, and, and the certain classmates at the older brother's school, they have some, uh, some situation. And then he spends the last dollar on the animation of having everyone in this town do K Sera Sera. I like the Simpsons, right? Because it scrolls over right. a hill and there's uh, dozens of these people. They're all with their own little dramas and tragic comedies, seeing Case of Us around. And the Imanos are floating above it all in these different colored umbrellas. Mm -hmm. I do think it's the best scene in the film. Mm. And it reminds me not just of the Simpsons, but also of Jacques Tati's Playtime. Ah. Uh, in the way that movie ends with the. Uh, Basically, the world becoming a carnival, and that feeling brought out by the the song and the animation goes quite far in making sense of something that had been just extremely episodic and mm. and, and trying to unify it. I had a similar feeling, but to less effect than <laughs> than I uh, did in in only yesterday. In the end of only yesterday. Once I realized it was all these random things she's reminiscing is because of her attempt to make herself fit, to get herself a way, uh, to figure herself out in a way of fitting. In the same way, the the ending of My Neighbors to Yamadas felt to me, oh, this is the big, all-encompassing world kind of mission of, from which all these little mini and micro tragic comedy can spring. Right. So that part I really in enjoyable and gives me and leads me to like want to take a look at the movie again to see like where are these underpinnings for that. But but up until then I was like really seeing like never figured to see the equivalent of a three panel comic strip done over and over and over and over again in a ninety minute form. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of how I felt that the worked out here. Yeah, but now we get to a really big example of an epic kind of form in his next movie, The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Released in 2013. A bamboo cutter discovers a tiny girl in a stalk of bamboo, and he and his wife decide to raise her as their daughter. As young Kaguya grows up, she becomes a beloved figure and creates a challenge to suitors for her hand. But none know her long-held secrets. The animation looks like it could be watercolors and... At the beginning, it seems like it's it's going to be one of those more subtle bits of animation, but because the subject matter is so magical, because the story goes into such interesting places, 
the animation follows it and becomes more and more elaborate without actually looking like any other animation I've ever seen. Mm. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting because we, we've been talking about this theme of movement, right? Or like these connections between the different films and all the movement that's happening in the films. And if I'm thinking about Princess Kaguya and the style in which it was animated, it looks like watercolor, like calligraphy and whatnot too. And we know that's a stagnant art form. It doesn't move, obviously. So in, in, in this particular tale has been around for almost as long as calligraphy has been around, if not longer. And it was really refreshing to see how Takahata used movement in this film in very subtle sort of ways and using the scant amount of color that he had and line work that he had to work with. That was a really cool part of it. And you mentioned uh, that it's a story that's very old. It's mm-hmm. this uh, Princess Kaguya yeah. folktale, which has been adapted in Japan countless times in many different styles and ways. But I think to most of us in the States, this is probably our first introduction to it. And I really wonder how perceptions will differ between Japanese viewers and foreign viewers, because if if the broad outline of this story is known going into it, then you you have similar expectations that we might in a, a retelling of a Grimm's fairy tale. Right. But for me, since I knew nothing about this folk tale, I was just entranced the whole time because I didn't know where it's going. The the uh, farmer chops down a bamboo tree and finds a, a tiny little sprite girl in it. And then when he brings the sprite girl home in his in the palm of his hand, it turns into an actual baby that just starts to grow faster and faster. And it's done in a way that's both whimsical and yet never frivolous it really feels like this story has weight to it this is my vastly preferred take on the superman origin story (laughs) (laughs) we were talking earlier about how certain uh, of these films maybe most of the films we talked about are have as a theme this sense of belonging like, heck, the ending of My Neighbors, the Yamadas. By the way, the neighbors are never established in the movie right. until you say the end. Which you could argue, <laughs> we are the neighbors. We're meant to be the neighbors. Yeah. In Princess Kaguya is the sense of belonging and distance that was explored of, with David Bowie in that film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, mm-hmm. or, uh, from, a, from a similar outer location. And it, and it looks at... The sense of belonging and and being out of place with the coming of age story in a really wonderful way in the beginning. All these different incidents, just these little contemplative moments that you were just wondering as they like as they fight each other, they try they practice they con- have a contest to climb trees, they're going on adventures to find some food to eat, and as as she grows up and develops from all these really tiny moments in this pastoral community, it's rendered wonderfully. And I, I have to just say, on the absolute most basic level. This is the most loveliest piece of sustained piece of animation 
that I have ever seen. Every single image could be a delightful watercolor composition in and of itself. And once you start introducing, like, cinematography into it, and the light and the shadow on things, it makes it even more glorious. There is a term that the Pure Cinema podcast put in, and the idea that the film can react to you on just the level of how the play of light and color can get you to feel. And this is something where, by itself, that gets you to feel that. And it connects that with these moments that are just growing up that can be so small, but like are, are the things that come back to your memory. So that effect that happened in Only Yesterday, where the outside is not shaded because that's not the mount part of the memory. That's mm -hmm. not the important part. It's the thing that was most resonant for this person growing up. So it fits thematically and artistically to a sense of memory in a wonderful way. For instance, there is a scene where the princess uh, gets upset and runs away. And as we follow her running, and this is what I talk about, this is what I was talking about with the complexity of the animation, it switches from the watercolor look to a pure charcoal drawing, and the trees become just these sticks. And the movement of the character is so intense here that every bit of emotional expression is happening through the background, through the animation. It's extraordinary. Yeah, and I think, too, even in that scene, the color usage is phenomenal as well, too, right? So she's she's tearing off all these very colorful clothes and the kimonos against this very dark, dismal background because that really reflects she's going from this place of perceived vibrancy in a rich environment, an exquisite environment, to where she actually wants to be as free, and it's going to take a little bit of weeding through the darknesses in her life in order to get there. Mm -hmm. Also, just on a sheer like component of animation level, when she's running through the woods, she's at her last nerve, right? Mm -hmm. So the, it become it descends to become just the literal, the form of it, the, that it's just these charcoal shards become more apparent to us in the audience. It's like the film is disassembling because the character is disassembling at, the, at, at one of her like lowest points. Yep. Um, when you look at all these films that we were talking about, It took him a long time to make this film. I think uh, over a decade from between this and, and My Neighbors of Yamadas. And, mm -hmm. and he had said in certain interviews that he was not necessarily thinking of this to be his magnum opus. Well, if it wasn't, it is the greatest accidental magnum opus of all time. Because uh, this is actually shocking for a Director's Club podcast, I think. Downright cosmic, in fact. I think we can literally go in every one of the films we talked about has a culmination in Princess Cayuga. Like from the very first, how does the limited use of animation, but one thing that was, that was done for a budgetary reason, it's clearly done for an artistic reason, the most artistic reason. Because when she gets reunited with, uh, with, uh, 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 someone she could have had a relationship with earlier in the movie, that's rendered in as much as spirited away or, or Princess Mononoke did all the animation gets delivered there, right? But then also look at the way of like how it's, and how like the environment is getting oppressed and how characters are represented differently as Palm Poco did. Like how there's a great scene where she and her foster mother are leaning down to look at this small garden and the garden looks like the whole world, 
right? Mm-hmm. And what's that say? What does that say on per, on perspective? Well, she makes a point that to her the garden looks fake, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of really interesting thematics going on Absolutely. in this as well that deal with the back to nature issues we saw in both Only Yesterday and Pompoco, because her parents or her father in particular has this vision that she needs to be royal, that she needs to be a true princess. And the the bamboo is helpful in providing him enough gold to uh, build a, a giant uh, castle, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's not what she wants at all. She misses the simplicity of be, being able to be a child and running around while everyone around her is trying to fit her into this societal box that she just wants nothing to do with. Right. And there's also this like added factor too, is that not only is she trying to belong to nature, is she trying to make her father happy and belong to the perceived exquisite level of society in which he wants her to. But there's also the fact that she's not even from earth. Yeah. She's from a different planet or she's, of a spiritual essence. I think deep down, she always knew that she'll have to go back there. So she's struggling in multiple ways to decide, I really want to belong to nature. But at the same time, I need to make my father happy. And the same time, I know at the end of the day, I'm going to end up going back to the moon and not get what I really want. Yeah, it's almost like uh, I feel for her situation in a way in a for a very different movie, John Frankenheimer's seconds, because Mm -hmm. The, the real tragedy and heartbreak of it was not that they failed to get what they wanted, but in a way that what they wanted was not attainable. Or maybe they didn't even realize what they what they wanted or what they could get out of this world. Like and She points out like later in the movie that, oh, it's a little too late, but you could have been happy here. But you were just so busy in things that people think were, think was important. The thing that I think turns this from a very good movie into a truly great movie is how all the fantasy elements really are hiding the fact that this story is the story of all of our lives Mm. in the idea that we are all found as a precious, innocent thing and grow. And even the whole moon concept is kind of, an idea of learning about death and coming to terms with that. And how do you live your life knowing that it's finite? Yeah. And then you attach that theme in with how wonderful a character uh, the princess is in that she's trying to find her true self, just like our lead in Only Yesterday. And it's all done through this fantasy sheen, but the the fantasy sheen is removable, and this story becomes incredibly universal. Take a look at how Hilda looks in The Adventure of Horace. Take a look at how in her appearance, but look at also her story, how she's also in trying to belong to a place, mm-hmm. but she's fundamentally different. Yep. And and I think you made such a great point that there at the end that that the, there's it's a universal kind of message there. But I want to add a little couple extra dimensions to it because Christine, you said about how it may not be a doesn't have to be need to be a physical planet, but but also that you said it was a spiritual dimension. It's notable about how they take her away and how 
the entities who take her away are not done in a threatening manner. In fact, it's, it is festive in a way. Yes. It's almost a celebration. And the main figure who seems to be commanding this trek to pick her up is a Buddha right. figure. That's saying some really interesting things about religion. Or, like, maybe about how, like, organized religion goes and gives people maybe a mechanism to deal with these really big concepts. And also, because in Buddhism, a central tenet about it is about how, like, life on Earth is suffering. So it's it's a weird kind of irony that a Buddha figure is taking her away. And also, a tenet is about, like, how our trials help define us as people. And so you get a robe of forgetting. And then, but the robe also adds a whole social class to it because the, it's the great cosmic joke that, uh, like at the end of Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, they said, well, look, rich or poor, evil or good. Well, they're all equal now. So in a way, it's kind of literally a cosmic joke at the end of this movie in that all these lords think they're so highfalutin. And what, what did you say about fake, the, the fakeness thing, right? They want to win her up by these baubles. So mm-hmm. what's the value of the baubles, number one? What's the value of the fake baubles that people dress up, right? Right, and that goes back to, like, what are the fruits of your labor, ultimately, at the end of the day? If you're surrounded by trinkets, material items, exquisite items, are you really happy at the end of the day with that outcome, or did you want to choose something else, but you weren't able to? Certain folks were able to. We know for a fact that in Only Yesterday, she made the conscious change to go and live as a farmer, because that's what she wanted to do, even though her family wanted her to work in an office. Mm -hmm. And here, Kaguya, she just was not able to do that, because she always knew that she was a moon being, or of another spiritual world, and when she received the call she had to go to it regardless if she wanted to or not but she is tempted because uh, there is a childhood friend of hers right that she does like and there's a lot of well what ifs first of all what if she didn't have to be called back to the moon so soon but also we see that he has a a family at this stage too so it it does it does not yeah right yeah it's another level of of complexity but it shows that this character despite her cosmic being had these very human wants and needs and also this who she would be connected to she had no interest in being connected to the king or to any kind of royalty she wanted to be connected to the people who were with her when she was growing up and, and, and remind her of that innocence. There, there is that. But then, like, I think the movie's even more nuanced still because at the end, when she gets the robe on, she does forget, like, her foster parents were mm-hmm. wailing in front of her. But it's a really notable touch that this young girl who's been her assistant as she tries to become a more, like, nobility... And she's been treated like like this squat-like figure with a big smile. And, but she comes walking around with a bunch of the young kids who look like they were from the from the poor parts of the, uh, town. And they're playing their ramshackle instruments and they're playing the song. And that's what gets her to turn back. Mm-hmm. So what's that saying? A particular kind of innocence that maybe touches on the youngest sibling from Grave of the Fireflies and... I don't know. My head's wrapping around how, like, that is so obviously about suffering 
but then also it's the kind of aspect that lets you remember or calls somebody like that back. So what was the value of being on here and having those experiences? Right. And I, I was I wanted to go back for a bit to the idea of suffering. And it's interesting to me because I think the movie arguably is asking the reader to decide what do you think is suffering? Do you think forgetting is suffering or do you think remembering is suffering? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people remembering certain things, even if they're, they're horrible Mm -hmm. is suffering to remember those things. But for a lot of people, especially very observant folks like Takahata and Miyazaki, I think even the heart, they, they're very observant directors, extremely observant. And, you know, to the point where they would even tell their animators, we want you to go to Switzerland and, observe all the wildlife there and do all this because we're making a movie about Switzerland so you need to know exactly what it looks like in person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for folks like Takahata and Miyazaki, remembering even the bad things is part of what makes you a human being and part of what makes your experience unique. Because if you forget those things, then you're really a shell of a human being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is truly death. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like some something that like uh, the Charlie Cox's magnificent eternal sunshine of the spotless mind also explores. Mm-hmm. This one's a, obviously a, a very high intellectually plotted film, but here is done in just one of the most uh, uh, gloriously sustained like bursts of watercolor and charcoal artistry ever, ever depicted. And again, I really love that it's the kids sing because it does the innocence part and does the poverty part and does the art part of connection that gets you to the, that gets you to the gauch, the cellist level, which also can find in from nature as well. It's just this wonderful roadmap where every destination leads to a rewarding other destination to me to like to have these particular elements. And I think it does expand on it, on, the, on, on, for example, the class side, and especially on the creative expression. And so something like that where you're on this magic road where no matter what curve in the road you do, you're going to get to a rewarding place is, uh, is always a wonder to have and experience in a film. Especially for a film that manages to be just so entertaining on a scene-by-scene basis. We're rightfully dealing with a lot of these interesting themes, but even if you take that away, even if you take the originality of the animation away, this character growth that they're doing, this interaction that they're doing, the bits with with the suitors and their lies and... and <laughs> Everything is just coming together to make a massively entertaining film. And you don't see this often, but I think this, as Takahata's last film, is also his best film. It's also, I would say, it's his most film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, and maybe it's part of just the effect of looking at these all, all of these other films, but in terms of just the basic kind of, of just what he draw, chooses to draw, in terms of his concerns about community, belonging, nature, art, these elements that were bounced in on all these other films, they're all kind of addressed. It's all really summed up and it, puts in a world where all of this all of these elements are possible to be appreciated and contemplative and thought up and expanded on right and especially in today's modern world too it's it's interesting to me how many sp- different spans of time that all of his films go across right so we start with like adventure of horse like almost like indigenous peoples of long 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 ago to going 
to you know gouge the cellist to perceivably maybe 1900s or right. so and then like only yesterday in the 90s um Pompoko in the 60s mm-hmm. and then princess kaguya way far in the past into folklore mm-hmm. and i think to me it's just very interesting how he never loses sight of where japanese culture has been in the past and how much the same issues and ideas of the human condition and decisions that human beings have to make in order to survive or get by or to discover who they are is still very much a part of modern society today. And I think he was always leading up to that point. And you can definitely see it even in my neighbors, they modest with the Basho poems being used from the 1600s or 1500s and then accumulating over to Princess Kaguya. How much does folklore and your ancestry really express to you about your humanity or tell you about your your humanity yeah that's a great point as is the point on on the adaptation thing that poco had such as its visual concern it's uh, so much about people adapting to what part of society like and also presentation what's fake and and uh how little she's actually seen by the people who adore her and so on right so his biggest film culminated film is the one he he went out on and how many um, directors can you really say that about? To have everything lead up to this point is a really remarkable direction. Christine, it was so good of you to be able to join us on this exploration of this guy and his work. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate both you and Brad as well because we just had a very enlightened discussion and it was truly for me a pleasure and an honor to be talking about this man because I know the first movie I saw of his was Grave of the Fireflies at a still impressionable age and just the way in which he speaks about humanity and the human condition have always had a very profound effect on me. I see that in every one of his films that I have watched. So for me, it really changed my perspective about how I watch other films and how directors are able to show those things and express them via animation. We're so glad then you were able to join us and share that because absolutely, it was a pleasure. A really extraordinary director, and I'm glad we got a chance to really delve into his stuff. Uh, me too. I find there's just some astounding films that I'm tremendously happy I've got a chance to encounter. And even in the films that hit me in a different way, it's a way that I was not totally expecting on it, and yet helps expand my horizons of what animation can can do. Now, we hope you guys listening in uh, also enjoyed our explorations on his films. If you want to uh, send us a note and let us know what you like about um, this director and some of your favorite moments of the films of his that you've seen, you can send the Directors Club an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found in multiple places across the internet, from our iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook, Directors Club Podcast, Twitter DC Podcast. We are on YouTube getting some Ingmar Bergman and Orson Welles films up on Directors Club Podcast. And you can find our episodes available online at our website of directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and hope to catch you on another episode of the Directors Club.
Now, Grave of the Fireflies came out at just about the same time that a Miyazaki film uh, called My Neighbor Totoro came out, that being a delightful uh, children's film. For some reason, these two films were tied together as double features. So anyone taking their kids to see the uh, adorable Totoro <laughs> wow. would, uh, would also be treated to the uh, atrocities of World War II firebombings uh, at the same time. Needless to say, neither film fared well from this combination, and they were soon thereafter separated. Start them young, I guess. Wow, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. A, yeah, a, little, a little failure on... On, on booking there what were you going to really pair grave of the fireflies with though right i mean <laughs> yeah there's not really it's not really a double feature kind of movie maybe just leave it at that <laughs> exactly maybe it there and then leave like some libations afterwards to try and recover from what you just saw right <laughs> i'm not surprised that they actually did that because if in the research that i've done <laughs> Panda Go Panda was uh, a feature with uh, one of the Godzilla movies as well. Wow. So they they happened to put Panda Go Panda at the beginning of that for a little lightheartedness uh, right before the the terror and the destruction. Wow, it's almost like as if screenings in Japan must have had eight, eight movies that they really need to really right. need to fit these slots. And just sometimes, just through random chance, it's not going to turn out well. 